Hello, I'm Bob Fisher, guest hosting for Dave Gilmore, and this is Design Intelligence. As part of our series on building and leading world-class creative teams, we'll be talking to leaders of organizations inside and outside of architecture, but all in industries where creativity means success or failure. Today's conversation is with Valerie Jacobs. Valerie is the Chief Growth Officer at LPK. She's a futurist who helps clients understand important changes and develop strategies to create meaningful brand experiences that help businesses adapt, excel, and win. On this edition of This is Design Intelligence, she talks about what led her to trend forecasting, how to attract and retain diverse groups of thinkers, and why trends, in the absence of a strategic response, are not really all that valuable. Welcome to this edition of This is Design Intelligence, conversations with leadership voices in the built environment. Valerie Jacobs, welcome to This is Design Intelligence. We're very honored that you're with us today. Thank you so much. I'm excited to be here too. This is part of a series that we're doing, uh, talking to leaders of creative organizations, trying to look under the hood and sort of see what it is that successful leadership of creative organizations looks like and uh, what we can learn from each other. So we're talking to people both inside of the architecture, engineering, and construction industry and people like you who have a different perspective and come from other industries. So just for the, for the sake of context, tell us a little bit about your path and how you got to where you are today. Well, when I was originally an undergraduate, I tried to explain to my professors what I wanted to do. And I pointed to the pages of a fashion magazine and said, I want to be the person who makes this. That gives you a little bit about what I knew about design at the time, AKA nothing. And so they sent me off from fine art to marketing and business. And I had a career at the very beginning of my professional life in marketing and public relations. And that is when I discovered design. I was around a lot of designers, a lot of architects, et cetera. And I was like, wow, these are the makers of the material reality. I, I want to be with these people. This is my tribe. So I went to graduate school at the University of Cincinnati, thought I would go into fashion design and kind of had an ironic little moment where I realized that that's not what I wanted to do either. So luckily, around the same time, I discovered trend forecasting. I also realized that trends weren't just for fashion designers or for the Detroit auto show, that they were things that you could really use to understand the dynamics of change at any level. And I was hooked. Um, Started my own really small agency and over time ended up situating myself as the expert on futures thinking in a company called LPK. And we're a brand and innovation consultancy. And what was great about that was I came along just the right time where trends were an emergent part of business. And we put our futures thinking practice as the phase zero of all of the work that we did in the agency. So trend forecasting or, or taking a look at trends, we actually use the word foresight uh, quite a bit, yes. which is kind of looking beyond the horizon and trying to see what the forces and factors of change are and how they're going to affect you know the industry and the, the world in general. 
Is that similar to the model that you use? And, and how did you first discover this? Yes, we think of it in a very similar way, maybe with a few tweaks. I'd say that in our businesses, we often are doing work that will not come into material reality for quite some time. So imagine architects, they take a very long time from a building to go from a blueprint to being in the world. Same thing with brands and new products. People are on long timeframes, especially in research and development. These things could be as much as 10 years in the future. And I've always really felt like if you were not thinking about the world of tomorrow, by the time your business, your brand, your innovation, your building comes into material reality, it will be obsolete. So you must be thinking about the future and the context of tomorrow when you're designing today. So it's a bit like when you first learn to drive, they tell you, you know, don't look at the road right in front of the car. Look as far off onto the horizon as you can see. Well, just for a little bit of context, tell us a little bit more about what LPK does relative to brands and innovation. Who are some of the companies that you've helped? What is the global reach of the practice? Just tell us a little bit more about LPK. As I mentioned before, we're a brand and innovation consultancy. We really focus on creating the now, near, and next for businesses and brands. I think what's unique about us is we are independent and employee-owned. We've been in business for almost 40 years. We have a talented staff of seasoned brand builders, innovators, people who are really obsessed with moving the needle for business. You know, brand building also and innovation are really probably some of the most futuristic and front end things you can possibly do in a business. It's the stuff kind of under the hood that defines the ethos of a company, the essence of what you want a consumer to experience. And I've been lucky myself to work on some of the most ambitious and iconic businesses in the world ranging from P&G companies and brands there, such as Gillette, Pampers. We also work a lot in other consumer packaged goods, everything from food to beverages like Corona. We used to laugh at work and say, if it's in your house somewhere or in your fridge, we've probably worked on it. So a lot of the work that you've done has really been in the business to consumer space. Have you done anything in the business to business space or in the uh, in the services space? Yes, we have designed the corporate identity and, you know, kind of, again, the meaning under the hood, as well as how that gets expressed into the business marketplace for some really big Fortune 100 clients as well. ADM comes to mind. And then we also often work in the insurance space. And that could be any number of household names in that space. So often we'll be helping them organize their portfolio of offerings. We might be helping them innovate new products and services for their clients. We might be using futures thinking to help them communicate to their board of directors or leadership what's coming down the pike so that they understand how people will be changing in the future and how they need to think about their business in a different way. So absolutely. I think we believe that our approach to the work and our level of consultancy is applicable across all types of businesses. 
So it sounds like the work that you do uh, with the companies that LPK serves is really about taking a look at how the market for their service or their product uh, is going to change and to help those folks, meaning your clients, understand how they might navigate their businesses and reposition their brands or create new products in order to satisfy, let's just say, an opening or a need in this changing consumer landscape or customer landscape. Absolutely. I mean, you know, normally as any business or brand, you would not put your positioning, that's sort of like what you stand for in the marketplace on display. But you just said almost word for word LPK's positioning, which is harnessing change to build momentum and growth for companies. So you're exactly right. It's about finding the opportunity and helping a business navigate the currents of change in order to get from where they are now to where they want to be. When I think about futurists, on the one hand, you've got you've got people who take a look at how the future is changing and they use data and they use a certain amount of rigor. And then you got folks who are kind of winging it, you know, and there's there's everybody who's kind of on a continuum there. Um, how have you seen, let's just say, the model of the way that uh, trends forecasting is done or futures is done? What are some of the changes that you've seen in the time that you've been working on it? And what are some of the best and worst practices? Well, there's a lot packed into that question. I'll start with a belief that I had from the beginning is trends are trends are trends. They're out there in the world, and they're really a reflection of people's attitudes, behaviors, and lifestyles. So as a trend forecaster, what you're doing is gleaning the signals from the very edge of culture and society and getting a feel for how those will unfold. And what's been really interesting is that I've been at this for 20 years. And when I first started, you could not Google anything you wanted. My secret sauce was that I knew where all the best magazine stands were in New York City, and I would go and find the most cutting edge media, and I could basically make sense of all of the signals and connect the dots in what I found in the most cutting edge literature out there. Now you can Google pretty much anything. In fact, you could go online right now and say, um, I want a free trend report and you would get results back that say 1,000 trends, one low price. And so it's a real commodity business. And we're all swimming in trends and data. But what I've come to believe more recently is that is not where the power is. In the raw state, trends, data, qualitative or quantitative are just inputs. It is just raw information. It's a lot to take in and wade through, and it really isn't something that provides much value yet. And so, Bob, you mentioned a while back, like you call it foresight, and I think you're right because trends are not valuable. You have to translate it into something that is of strategic use. So the way I think about it is data turns into insight and trends have to be translated into foresight. And foresight maybe is what people use in order to make decisions? I mean, I would think of it as taking information and turning it into knowledge. 
So you can just swim around in all those inputs. It might make for great dinner party conversation. A lot of times trend reports end up on people's shelves and they don't actually act on them. I believe that you have to put your insight and your foresight together to create actionable intelligence. Then you have to turn that into strategy. You have to make choices about what you're going to do when you have that intelligence. So what's an example of the kind of trends that you're looking at? We did a project for a technology-related company, and they know it's going to take five years to build out the infrastructure for this technology. Where people want this technology to be today is one thing. This company wanted to know where are people going to be and where will they want this technology five years from now? Because that could be different. So you might be thinking about what are migratory patterns going to look like? Are we really going to live the same way five years from now? Are we going to be living in city centers or more urban? So they wanted to know not where to put the technology today, but where that technology infrastructure should be five years from now. So that could be based off of climate change and migratory patterns from that. It could be, will we still be all working remote? Will we be in urban centers again? How important will universities be? And will they need this particular technology to make their lives easier at that point? So you have to not only be looking at the most narrow version of life or the most linear trajectory today is going to look exactly like tomorrow, you really need to broaden your aperture, which is why you want to use trends and therefore foresight, which is I could name off the environmental trends, the political trends, all of the things that might impact this technology. But until I've made it into something actionable, I can't tell those systems engineers where to put the technology. So Valerie, you moved from leading the trends practice at LBK to a position of firm-wide leadership, and your title is now the chief growth officer. What does your current role entail? My current role is, I'd say, three things. I'm helping us identify the clients we would like to have in our portfolio and what are the best ways to run our new business development practice in order to gain those clients. And that part is basically marketing. So if I was going to say it in a boring way, I'm, I'm over sales and marketing, but I also consider it to be the tip of the spear. Where should the entire company go? Where will we get our growth from in the future? So those are the three things that are on my mind all the time. And in today's world, the chief growth officer is helping to grow the people as well. I'm, I wouldn't call it like an HR role, but I am certainly coaching and guiding as many people in our company as possible because I see that as part of being a futurist is we better get those future leaders ready and able to run the agency of the future. Sure. Let's go back to when you first formed the Futures team at LPK. I would imagine that you need some pretty, um, hate to use a cliche expression, but out-of-the-box thinkers, some highly Absolutely. creative people who mm -hmm. are also quite analytical as well. Tell us the story about putting that team together and who you chose and why you chose them. So I've always had one foot into a university somewhere. And 
For starters, I just think doing work like this, you must have things that lend credibility to the work, meaning it is not magic. It's steeped in processes and rigor. And where that shows up very well in the world is universities. And so I was always teaching trend forecasting. And really, what's more important, what I was talking about is the applied trend forecasting. You don't want to just know what's cool for cool's sake. You want to develop what I call future fluency. It's a higher order ability to practice anticipation. And I call it future fluency for a reason, because you want to practice it over and over again. And again, this is like like I was saying a minute ago, you go from information to knowledge to wisdom. And wisdom is a higher order skill or higher order ability, if you will, to act with anticipation in in futures thinking. And like anything else, you want to develop your accuracy, your speed, and the ability to embrace the nuances. And the best way I knew to do that when I was building my team was to teach this to others, which made me better. I was able to articulate my process and make sure it was repeatable. And then I also basically was running a 10 to 12 week interview process for anyone in my studio. So I really would find the best talent in my class and then recruit them to come work at LPK. And that has served me really well over the past two decades. What types of backgrounds did these folks have? In the beginning, um, I primarily would hire uh, fashion designers and product developers, mainly because they were already working in fields where people utilize trends at the front end of their process. You know, no fashion designer would ever put fashion on the runway without um, understanding where it fit within the context of the past, the present, and where they thought the future was going. Fashion designers also understand the idea of the zeitgeist. These are the things you learned like your first year in fashion design school. And so I primarily stole from those practices. As time went on, that class has grown. And now um, even non-design majors can take the class in applied trends at the university where I'm teaching right now. And you get marketers, business majors, anybody from any other college that wants to come take this class. Because what you're really looking at is a mindset someone who has a pretty wide lens on the world. Um, I look for people who are naturally curious. And in some ways, we would interview people. We would ask them questions like, what are the past five books you were reading? And if somebody hadn't read five books recently, they probably weren't a great candidate. Or "What's, what's your stance on this pop culture idea? What kinds of things are you tracking? And, you know, if you've got a young person in there who's telling you their hobby is taxidermy or something else like that, you've probably got a good trends candidate right there. They need to be kind of a little bit a person who flies their freak flag and is like not afraid to like tippy toe out to the edge of some subculture and bring back, you know, the behaviors of those people. So I imagine you want people who aren't prone to falling into ruts of predictability or or thinking in very conventional ways. You want people to be able to think unconventionally and, and to question norms or question what they're seeing to try to find out what's behind it. Correct. A lot of lateral thinking, I think, is one thing. It's like, I'm seeing this in these three divergent places out in the world. 
something deeper must be going on. So a lot of non-linear thinking, more lateral style thinking. And then I'd also say people who are not afraid to make intuitive leaps. I liken it to what coders say is if this, then that when they're coding. So I'm like, if this is happening, then what might happen after that? So this ability to make an intuitive leap on an implication that might come from something that's happening today. Well, these sound like a lot of the qualities and characteristics that you might want in um, all kinds of creative professionals, not just on the trends team. I think you're right. And there's never been a year that I didn't have a bulletproofer, though, like somebody who would tell me if I was crazy. So I think you need all types of people. I think one of the things that we've been thinking about a lot at LPK is cognitive diversity. And so you want those lateral thinkers, but you also need some people who are really analytical, strategic, thoughtful, uber rigorous. You need all types of thinking to make something great. So how do you how do you attract and retain such a diverse group of thinkers who are able to, you know, perform at the high level that you need them to perform at? Well, I'll take a step back for a minute there, Bob, because two and a half years ago in March of 2020, when the world changed, I have the great pleasure of working for a CEO who understands that you never waste a crisis. And 2020 was crisis after crisis in so many ways. But people think it's hard to change, but I don't know about any other organizations here, but we changed overnight. And we used every opportunity to think again. And I was just listening to a podcast on the Hidden Brain where uh, Shankar Vedanta was interviewing Adam Grant, who has a new book out called Think Again. And I think we at LPK spent the past two and a half years thinking again on everything we do. And one of the first things that we thought about differently was our recruiting and talent. And this got accelerated after George Floyd was murdered and um, there were all of these justice, equity, diversity and inclusion efforts. And one of the things that we did that we I don't think we will ever look back from is we relinquished all of our hiring criteria. So here we are two years, two and a half years later, and we have 25 new people in our company. And now we're, we have people living in eight states. So we absolutely said, you do not have to live in Cincinnati, Ohio to work at LPK. You can live anywhere. And we are fully remote. We've embraced the idea that instead of working together all the time, we bring the company together several times a year. And then we make hybrid options for everything we're doing. And we had a really extensive equity and inclusion vision. And this has not only increased our ethnic and racial diversity, but I believe really increased our cognitive diversity because everybody is not swimming in the same pool as they were. You know, it's not like we're all trading punches and trading resources with, you know, four other agencies that are sitting in Cincinnati and everybody went to college in Ohio. You know, now we have all of these people who have had so many different experiences in order to end up at a place like LPK. And now what's been interesting about acquiring talent is it's not like people are landing on your doorstep anymore. People have options 
we have had to change our strategy from sort of people who are actively submitting their information to us to passive to finding people who are passively looking and we find the people that we want to recruit and gently pursue them. We would never strong arm anyone who doesn't want to leave their current situation, but we have taken a much more active role in finding candidates that we think would be a good fit and bringing those people into LPK and showing them what our culture and our company is all about. And I think that's why we've had such great luck attracting new talent and then retaining the talent that we have. I think we've always been a place that has like a lot of autonomy and freedom and ability to be insanely creative. And that's just an environment that people want to be in, whether you're all in one you know, room or spread across the country. Well, that's quite a quite a change in model for you all, because didn't you at one point have offices in a lot of different places in the world? Yes, we did. And, you know, the world has changed and many global businesses have kind of taken a different stance now. They run um, less globally, more regionally. And one of the things that we've done over the past several years is sort of unwind that idea that we're the same everywhere as anywhere. And now we are enabling more of a model that is regional in nature and has more ability to be different. We've also just divested of some of those entities and allowed them to live and breathe and have their own identity in the region where they were. And we have gone in a different direction as we've done that. We've gone from having sort of a singular global footprint where everything kind of ran the same way to being able to get into businesses that we believe will be future oriented. For example, we in the past year have launched a business that's in our holding company that's just about building brands in the metaverse. So we say LPK builds the brands in the real world, and we have another company that builds brands in the virtual world. So you're planning for all different kinds of contingencies. Oh, yes. Let's let's kind of go back to this idea of, of culture. Now, you talked about how you were, you know, in the midst of all these changes that uh, the company was undergoing, and that the world was undergoing, that you started to make some big changes in your organization. And whenever you have big changes in the organization, there's always a cultural component to that. How is it that you approach the question of a culture of creativity on a firm level and how do folks approach it on a team level? I think this has been one of the hardest things to crack, to be frank. And I'll say that because it was literally overnight, we dispersed and there was no adoption curve for new technologies, or I guess there was, it was just straight up like overnight, our usage of Slack became the primary tool that we use organized around that mural for online collaboration, um, not only with ourselves, but with our clients. And there was just, you know, you think about these massive change management firms and we keep asking ourselves what's holding us back now from changing overnight anything we want to change. And I think the thing that we have done is we have created forums to talk to each other and discuss things in ways that we never had before. And we have so many more what I would consider hard conversations 
or discuss difficult topics in real time. So we bring everybody together on a very regular cadence. And when I say everybody, I mean every single person in our company, and we're about 70 people. We have a meeting on Monday morning where we all get together and talk about everything going on in the agency, just sort of like what's happening. And then we have a number of channels that people can go to to discuss inspiration, what other agencies are doing, looking up and out, what are brands doing, what kind of strategies are we seeing in the wild? And then on the other end of the spectrum, if something happens in culture, we will plan a meeting within the week and discuss it. And we do not shy away from talking about the any of the riots that happened in Cincinnati in the summer of 2020. January 6th, we were that week talking about what happened. And these are not politically motivated conversations. They give everyone the opportunity to air out their feelings and to have an environment of psychological safety so that we can talk to each other and sort of take the pulse. And I know that you asked about creative culture, but I don't care what kind of culture you're trying to have, just culture in general. But if you do not have psychological safety and the ability to talk about hard topics together, you're you're never going to be high performing. And so I think this is something that we embraced early on in right after the pandemic began. And we, it's been so profoundly impactful to our company. We keep it going, even if there's not a topic of, you know, externality that is a crisis. At the same time, I'll say a positive thing is we rethought our entire three-year picture, what we wanted our agency to look like three years from now. And we enrolled the entire company in discussing that vision. It's just a really cool way of running a company and it's, you know, high touch. It's a lot of time out of the day, but I just don't know in this environment how you do anything differently. Well, the hard conversations are hard because they tend to be very emotionally charged and it's quite possible that people are coming at it from a lot of different perspectives where there could be that there's the potential for conflict. It seems like a move that has, it asks a lot of leadership because you've got to help people sort of steer through these uh, through these difficult conversations and wind up with some kind of productive conclusion or at least a productive process. Tell me a little bit more about what approach you all take or how you wind up pulling this off successfully. We have engaged a number of outside experts and consultants. We have had cultural competency training which sounds like a mouthful, and I guess it is. And that was one of the foundations that we've used. And we pair that with utilizing the Enneagram, which is a particular style. I I don't want to call it a personality profiling system, but I, I guess technically it is. But it is one that's focused far more on motivation versus behavior. And we have spent a lot of time and energy into having every single person in LPK trained in the Enneagram. And we use that as one of the things to help explain the dynamics between people within teams, within the company. And I think that that helps us depersonalize conflict. 
So again, I'll reference the podcast I spoke of earlier. You know, many psychologists call this the difference between task conflict, which is a non-personal way of looking at things. Um, You're talking about how to get the work done, what the work should be, what the approach is versus relational conflict, which is where all the emotions get involved and people take things personally. And I think we really strive to help people understand the difference to be able to have conversations that don't get personal and and to have these conversations when the stakes aren't high so that you're ready to have them when they are. And I think those are the tools that have helped us a lot. And I think in terms of Enneagram as well, there are nine particular styles, Enneatypes, if you will. And we make sure that the organization is balanced there as well, because that is representing nine different ways of sort of walking into a situation. And so we use that as a tool for cognitive diversity as well. Yeah, that was exactly the term that popped into my mind too, was it it sounds like what you're doing is you're, you're making sure that there is cognitive diversity, that there are many different viewpoints and many different backgrounds that are coming together. And then you're asking not only a whole lot of your leaders, but you're asking a whole lot of your people in terms of helping them come together in productive ways, uh, even when it has to do with, um, you know, stuff that can be can be pretty tough to resolve. I also feel like we're in a world where many organizations are getting flatter and there's not as much hierarchy. And I think that it's really important to have these skills um, both in an organization and a leader. And one of the things I've observed over the past few years is I kind of felt as a leader, it was my job to build up people's functional mastery is what I would call it. Like, this is the role you're in and here's how you get from this level to the next level to the next level. And I was training people on things that I would call how to get better and better at their job. They are in a function and they need to master it. And over the past two years, I have felt like our job as leaders also included helping people elevate their consciousness, helping them to grow personally. And in some ways, it's just totally asked leaders to rethink the very nature of an organization, which is people working together to accomplish things. And I like as a leader, it's asked so much more of us to be emotionally present to be fluent in psychology, to understand people's motivations, and to coach them on their personal growth, dare I say spiritual growth. And I'm not meaning religious, but I mean consciousness elevation, and to help people figure out who they are, who they want to be, who they want to become, and help them self-actualize in the context of a company. So it sounds like your ideas of leadership have changed quite a bit in the last few years. Absolutely. And it's caused me to grow. In what ways? You know, when you're, when you're leading design work or teams, you know, a lot of it is about the client, the brief, the work, how to be better. And I think that we've just over the past several years, it's looked a lot more like coaching people in interpersonal relationships, how to have hard conversations task conflict, relationship conflict, either one. It, it has to do more with the, the, the whole person. Absolutely. And I think in these flat organizations, 
you better have some strategies to grow people beyond a corporate ladder because I think, you know, work is more cross-functional than ever. The need for chemistry and collaboration is far greater, especially when you're distributed. And so it's just a whole different ballgame. So Valerie, you've had a pretty amazing career and a something of a, a, a curvy, but a very interesting path uh, in your time since you first decided that you didn't want to be a fashion designer anymore and you got interested in in what the future was telling us. If you had, knowing what you know now, if you could go back and tell younger Valerie anything and give advice to your uh, to your younger self, what would you say? Don't stress all the jobs you're ever going to have. You're going to make them up and they don't exist right now. Excellent. That would probably be, that's some of the most unique advice that I think I've ever heard somebody looking to give their younger self but it seems very fitting and seems like it's worked out very well for you. Yes. I, I laugh because once I feel like I've mastered something, I just am looking for what's next. I, I mean, it sounds so trite to be a futurist and to, to be wired, to be like, okay, what's what now? And I've made up every job I've ever had. But the main thing about making up your job, or at least the thing that I've done is I've never made up anything that didn't create value. So it's not about just making up some new fun thing. It was always about a client need, something that was happening on the landscape that told me that we needed to go into a new type of business. And, you know, I guess brass tacks, a place where there's undiscovered revenue. And I always felt like that it had to be something that was creating value for the company and usually it was like a frontier that needed to be defined. And that's where I shine and where I get my energy. One of the definitions I've always really appreciated about entrepreneurship or entrepreneurial thinking is taking a look at the world or taking a look at the market and seeing some unmet need and figuring out how to creatively fill that need. And it sounds like that's exactly what you've done with your career. I think that's a really good way of putting it. Well, fantastic. Valerie, it's been a delight talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, coming on to This is Design Intelligence and sharing your perspectives with us, uh, your unique perspectives on leadership in a creative organization. Oh, you're welcome. This was a joy. Thank you for joining us for this edition of This is Design Intelligence. The producer is Laura Spells. The sound engineer is Jared Knabel. This has been a DI Media Group production.